0: Well, the cool thing about Richard Donner was that, you know, unlike other filmmakers of his period, like, I don't know, Scorsese, Spielberg, Lucas, that kind of thing. He's a little bit older than those guys, maybe. But he he was just working away constantly in, in Hollywood, like always in the background, just uh, turning good work. And, of course, uh, the current gen of filmmakers are all sending out very heartwarming tributes now that he he's passed away because... He, in many ways, he sort of kicked off the whole superhero genre that has dom- dominated the industry now.
1: That's right. He was the executive producer for the X-Men film in 2000. And I think a lot of people have taken a lot of inspiration from him um, because he did the original Superman, which is still like really watchable, in, in my opinion. And the Richard Donner cut of Superman 2 is way better than the theatrical cut or the original cut or however you want to cut, call it. Um, if you ever get a chance... I can't recall what exactly is different about it, but I do know for sure that it did feel like a much better movie
0: well, and then uh, even after Superman he went on to make the goonies and the lethal weapon series the lethal weapon like so he's it's not like you can necessarily point at a particular movie and say, oh yeah, that's Richard Donner and like be able to identify particular stylistic things I think I've never I've never really picked up on a on a particular style with him. Maybe I haven't seen enough of his stuff, but... The
1: one thing I would say is that he, especially with, like, the superhero stuff, when it was easy to treat them as sort of, like, a kid's sort of vehicle for selling toys... Right. He, I think, treated them with a lot of seriousness and respect and and, and tried to at least make them accessible for adults. I can't remember, but I think in X-Men, there was only one or two lines that were kind of jokes, but it was a pretty straightforward, serious movie about... You know, two sides with really opposing views and and the stuff about like the Holocaust and genocide and all that stuff.
0: Right. I guess you could you contrast that against um, the Joel
1: Schumacher, (laughs)
0: Joel Schumacher or like even like before Donner's Superman movies, you know, the other screen uh, adaptations of Superman were definitely leaned on the campiness like the 1960s Batman kind of vibe um you know the the george reeves uh superman from the 50s was definitely like that and it was it was
1: definitely more of a kid's show yeah
0: so then like you know you you move out of tv and you have this first big screen adaptation of superman they could have gone the kind of jokey route but instead like you like you were saying he um he insisted that it it kind of be a little bit more mature yeah
1: exactly so rest in peace richard donner you will not be forgotten it's too bad that He's not really held in the same regard because I feel like this generation of comic book fans, the only name they'll ever know is probably Kevin Feige.
0: <laughs> maybe, yeah.
1: I mean, he, he's like master of the universe right now, right?
0: Yeah, maybe that's why Kevin Feige issued such a uh, uh, heartwarming tribute to him on Twitter the other day. <laughs> oh, okay.
1: Did he, I missed that there's so much going on i miss things all the time now there's too much news from all sorts of different outlets and sources and you don't even know what's real or what's not get
0: with the program there's there's so okay
1: sorry i'm sorry (laughs) the grumpy old dude in me is coming out
0: okay all right well on that note let's jump into the show
1: Welcome to the 96th episode of the Extra Buttery Podcast, the free-flowing conversation between two guys who love film and TV. My name is Jason Chen, and I'm joined by my co-host, Robert Snow. Hello, hello. And today we're talking Loki, the Disney Plus show that's reaching the final third of its six-episode story, Luca, Pixar's newest animated family adventure, and the Tomorrow War Amazon sci-fi action thriller starring Chris Pratt. Now, I remember when I was talking going on and on about WandaVision you're like ah, I'm not interested but I am interested in Loki so first thoughts yeah I know we're like two-thirds of the way through and quite a bit has happened in the last episode but what are your thoughts so far? I, I really like
0: it I mean I think this is partially a function of like the actors involved I like Tom Hiddleston a lot it, uh, not just as Loki but uh, in his other work as well Owen Wilson, Gugu mm-hmm. mbatha Ra, like the, the show has a lot of familiar faces for me that I've liked in other stuff. So, you know, easier for me to get into it from that perspective and just the, the overall retro futurist vibe and the kind of uh, the, the DNA that it shares with stuff like the video game series Fallout and Br- the uh, Terry Gilliam movie Brazil, stuff like that. I I love those kind of like quirky dystopian bureaucracy type settings. So it's it's got that on its on its side too. So I, I was kind of as soon as I watched the first episode, I, I knew I was going to be hooked on it. You're taking me somewhere to kill me. No, I'm taking you someplace to talk. Where I, lie, I don't like to talk. But you do like to lie, which you just did. Because we both know you love to talk. How long have you been here? I don't know. It's hard to say. You know, time passes differently here in the TVA. What does that mean? You'll catch up.
1: I remember the first Thor was directed by Kenneth Branagh, right? Mm, Yeah. Who has like a really strong um, sort of theater background. Yes. Tom Hiddleston always strikes me as a very Shakespearean actor, like someone I could see more on stage than in movies because he really has a way of like, enunciating every word and he has all these like sort of movements with his arms that he does um he kind of gets on my nerves sometimes actually <laughs> of course he does <laughs> what do you mean of course he does what do you mean by that
0: I don't know you just uh, you know I can I can see you kind of taking the the devil's advocate position here now because okay uh, fine you know he, it's ma- true. maybe maybe he's a little he's not quite as uh he's a
1: little much for me I'll say that. fine
0: that's fine all right
1: every time he falls and then he gets up and then he like throws his hair back. It just gets me because I just automatically think of shampoo commercials when he's doing that. <laughs> like I'm just like, dude, just relax. Stop with the exaggeration. I don't know if you've noticed that. Have you? Like- I
0: didn't notice it, that specific gesture. But uh, I mean, I, I know what you're talking about. And I, I think that partially that is just stuff that he's worked into the Loki character specifically. Like he doesn't do that in every role outside of
1: Marvel. No, no. It's just I think just this Loki. Um, but yeah, next time you watch Loki, just count how many times he throws his head and throws his hair. Yeah. I think it's really, really funny. Um, I agree with you, though. Like, in terms of the aesthetic, I really love where it's going. It's a little CGI, too much CGI for me, but I think that's fine because you're dealing with alien worlds and alternate universes and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, o. Wilson has been great. I, I don't think it's a surprise that he is one of the most well-received characters so far. He kind of plays a version of himself, and in every single movie he's been, he always whisper talks sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I thought that was really funny and very on point for him. My one major gripe about the show is that we're four episodes in, and I'm still not quite sure what exactly, what direction it's going. And I also felt the first two or three episodes was too much setup. There there wasn't a lot of going uh, going on in terms of, you know, just the plot itself. There was a lot of Easter eggs, a lot of teasing. And so I'm hoping episodes five and six will really ramp it up and, and give us some sort of, like, revelation about this universe.
0: Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, the, I, and the the plot line for people who are who have not been following along, this show kicks off in the follow-up to Avengers Endgame, the, the big movie from a couple of years ago, where we see Loki grab hold of the Tesseract, one of the Infinity Stones that uh, he's been lusting after for a long, long time. And he tries to escape captivity with S.H.I.E.L.D., but in so doing, he attracts the attention of the Time Variance Authority, which is this cosmic, multi dimensional police force who claim to be protecting the sacred timeline, this uh, construct or this belief system that there is one correct version of events uh, throughout all the different dimensions, and that any uh, variant timeline or variant version of a person splitting off through the various dimensions needs to be pruned and cleared up and basically deleted and killed uh, in an effort to preserve that one perfect version of events. And all it's all foreseen by these uh, space alien characters called the timekeepers, which no, nobody really seems to have a lot of interactions with. Of course, episode four seems to have a major revelation on that score. Um, but the, the whole time variance authority is what fuels a lot of that retrofuturism that I mentioned before. Like <laughs> everything is run like a 1960s government agency, but with weird weird kind of flashes of like, you know, hyper advanced technology blended with uh, old school computers and uh, weird little handheld devices and old school phone receivers. So it. You know, the, the the idea is that Loki's kind of caught up with these with these people. He's not quite sure if he wants to get rid of the Time Variance Authority entirely or just escape them and go back to whatever he was, his plans were before. And then, of course, he's crossing paths with other versions of himself from various other timelines, which provides most of the action of the past four episodes.
1: Yeah, and I think you're specifically talking about Sylvie. Yes, yeah. The female Loki, uh, who I think is a very interesting character. We learned a bit more about her in episode four. Um, I wonder if she'll ever sort of be a main character in the bigger MCU universe, though.
0: Maybe. I guess it depends. Uh, you know, with, with all of the revelations in episode four, the question is how much of what we've been seeing
1: is even real. Well, the other thing I wanted to mention is that you you talked about, like, the, the Tesseract that he steals in one of the timelines. Yeah. But there's one scene in the episode where he finds a drawer of Infinity Stones and he realizes, hey, that's not that important in all of these timelines. Yeah. So the problem with these kind of, like, Marvel things is that it, it, it kind of has to get bigger and bigger, right? So the, the next villain, whoever it is they introduce after Thanos, has to be bigger than Thanos. Yes. It kind of makes me feel a little less interested in the Infinity War now, knowing how inconsequential those stones may be. Do you get that feeling?
0: Yeah. Well, it's confusing in general because Marvel's approach to time travel, which they didn't really get into until Endgame. Like, they never brought up any kind of form of time travel until the main Avengers figured out a way to go back in time and pluck the Infinity Stones from their various points in time so that they could defeat Thanos. That was the the big thing that they the big win that they had. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a scene somewhere in that movie where the ancient one describes to, I guess it's, was it Hulk? Mm-hmm. I can't quite remember. Tilda Swinton's character describes to, to Hulk, I think, how the timeline has to be preserved and how the, That's once right. they're done with the Infinity Stones, they have to be returned to their various points in time so things don't get screwed up. Exactly, yeah. But the rules feel even more wishy-washy in this show, because if we're seeing a drawer full of Infinity Stones, then that suggests that they can just be left, you know, pulled out of their various timelines, and it wouldn't really matter. Like, what what I learned from that scene is that Steve Rogers could have just gone to the Time Variance Authority if he had a portal. And he could have, like, uh, (laughs) grabbed a handful of them and kicked Thanos' butt and then nothing would have happened. He would have, uh, (laughs) there wouldn't have been any real, like, weight to the conclusion of Endgame because, you know, the, the whole point was that he returns after spending his life with Peggy and, you know, all of that. Yeah,
1: that's right. So that's kind of the difficulty with these things because you're trying to introduce new concepts, right? Yeah. So you introduce this new concept. Well, then all the meantime, people have seen the previous uh, movies and the previous phases will be, will be saying, well, where was this before? You know, it's like Star Wars with Baby Yoda. It's like, where, where was Baby Yoda in episode 7, 8, nine, then? You know, if he was so important. right? Yeah, exactly. So that kind of gets me. Uh, but otherwise, it's an okay show. I, I think maybe my expectations were a little high. And granted, the series isn't over. But I expected a, a little bit more... Uh, than just, you know, low key running around and having trying to convince Owen Wilson that he can be a good guy the entire time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It feels like the character dynamics in this are not quite as developed as they were in WandaVision, for example. Like that show had a, had a yes. put a lot of effort into trying to sort out where Wanda's allegiances lie, whether she's uh, an anti hero or a full on hero. Um, how she's manipulated by Agatha, all that stuff. And this one, it doesn't really feel like Loki has changed a whole lot in the past four episodes. I kind of doubt that he will.
1: But don't you think he's really moving towards being like an actual traditional hero now? Maybe,
0: but then of course we know what hit the final conclusion of it all is, because he can only go so far until he has to end up back on that ship at the beginning of Infinity War to be killed by Thanos.
1: Well, but isn't this Loki, the one that escaped New York? It is, yeah. So, t- so yeah, so he won't he wouldn't be killed by Thanos because the moment he took that uh blue Infinity Stone, he branched off into another timeline.
0: right? Oh, okay, yeah, that's a good point. So in
1: this one, that's why he's still alive. Like he he doesn't have an end game. Ooh, did you get that? <laughs> <laughs> He'd still be alive, uh, because yes, the one that is in the Thanos timeline does die, but the one in this timeline. Because is, he's is no longer in the sacred timeline, right? Although he doesn't because he gets, spoiler alert, he gets pruned in episode four, but he wakes up.
0: Yeah, so clearly whatever the pruning is, is not what we've been led to believe it is, which is like deletion from the timeline or whatever.
1: That's right. So that's why I'm excited to see what episode five and six bring. It's either going to bring it to like a really fully realized conclusion like WandaVision does, or it's just going to make me more confused.
0: Yeah, that's the problem with any kind of time travel narratives is that, you know, True. they... Very few of them ever tie off every possible question. And
1: we should just make it a blanket rule that there's no time travel allowed. <laughs> like in any movie, I just like, and we'll get to this later. But I mean, time travel is such like shaky ground to stand on in, in any sort of movie or plot.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a big ball of worms and... Um- big ball of worms, not big can of worms? A ball of worms is probably just as bad as a can of worms.
1: I've never heard that. Does is that actually a thing? A ball of worms? I guess it makes sense. Maybe
0: I just coined it. The image in my head of a big ball of worms is <laughs> just as bad as opening a can of them. So
1: that's true. True. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, but yeah, like the uh, you remember in Endgame when they briefly have like a fourth wall breaking moment and they're talking about various other pop culture representations of time travel, and they're like. They're basically poking fun at it. They're saying like, "Oh, right. this isn't ba- this isn't Back to the Future. This isn't X." Right, a. right, they, right, they, right. Yes. You know, they they name drop a couple of examples of famous time travel and movies and whatever. But it, I remember at that that point being kind of frustrated because I was like, "Well, you can't just crack a joke about time travel in your movie and expect there to be no rules about how Agreed. it works." Like, you know, because then they just go ahead with whatever it was they their time heist or whatever you call it and. We didn't really fully understand what the rules were, but yeah, it's <laughs> par for the course with this kind of stuff. Yeah,
1: fair enough. Um, just out of curiosity, so, um, the Infinity War story in the comic books—is that how they defeated Thanos too? They went back in time. I don't know. I've not.
0: I've never been much of a Marvel reader in terms of comics, so I, I'm no expert on that. But uh, I feel like Marvel Studios is kind of forging their own path here they uh, and i'm
1: sure the i'm sure the new doctor strange movie will also have time travel and alternate timelines and all that sort of fun stuff anyway oh yeah oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh do you want to move on to something way more straightforward <laughs> yeah arguably
0: too straightforward
1: agreed agreed i like how you did that uh luca directed by enrico casarosa a longtime employee of pixar in his directorial debut. Animated family feature set in the 1950s, 60s, Italy. Uh, Luca is a sea monster who transforms into a boy when he's on land. Uh, when he's on land, he meets another boy, Alberto, who is also a sea monster, and together they explore the town of Puerto Rosso. And throughout these adventures, they meet Julia, a human girl, and Urkel, the local bully. And the dream for these two boys is to one, buy a Vespa so they can freely explore the rest of the world. And two, win the Porto Rosso cup race, uh, which is sort of like a triathlon where it's swimming, cycling, and pasta eating. (laughs) And they wanna win this cup race because they wanna show up Urkel, who uh, proudly boasts that he's won the race multiple times. And they also wanna win because there's a prize money and they wanna use that prize money to buy a Vespa. We do not go anywhere near the surface. Got it? Everything good
0: is above the surface. Walking. Air. <gasps> the sky. Clouds. The sun. Whoa, don't look at it. Just kidding. Definitely look at it. <laughs> so, I mean, I was I was looking forward to this like you would look forward to most Pixar movies. I mean, there's such a mm-hmm. such a reputable brand name in this kind of filmmaking that um, you know, the knowing that a new one is coming out, you can kind of add it to your calendar without a whole lot of worry. But I don't know. I felt uh, I don't know if it was the fact that this came out direct to Disney Plus, not even as like a premium rental or anything, mm-hmm. or the fact that. It's, it feels very much like your standard kids
1: movie, plot-wise. It really felt like The Good Dinosaur.
0: Yeah, a little bit like that. Yeah, where it's it's just
1: a... Like, the animation is great. The characters are cute. But the story is far too straightforward. Because I think we've been accustomed to Pixar doing really meta or existential stuff. Like Soul, with the little souls. Yes. And then Inside Out, which I think is peak Pixar. With uh, with all those little, I guess, humanoid feelings.
0: Yeah, yeah, anthropomorphized feelings. Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. And this one just feels like a straightforward coming-of-age story that could have been live-action, could have been animated. I don't think visually it does anything, you know, really risky or uh, innovative. It's a cute story. I actually kind of got bored, and I was kind of curious. Like, at one point, I really wondered out loud if I was watching a Pixar film rather than something from, like, DreamWorks or something like that, right?
0: Yeah, because, uh, well, Pixar is is known, like you said, for fairly dynamic stories, like multiple plots kind of interweaving together, there being like a real um, mm-hmm. heartstring pulling moment somewhere near the end, um, something with a real kind of thematic way to it. And this is mostly just like the, the story of countless other kids movies where it's like, be true to yourself, uh, don't be afraid to show people who you really are, that, that yeah. kind of basic message and
1: it's missing multiple layers
0: yeah yeah and, and like there are there are lots of fun little character moments like i love the um julia's father character he's going around with with only one arm and uh, he's
1: this massimo yeah he's
0: this big towering dude with, who's a fisherman and obviously he's um you would expect him to be very um italian <laughs> Well well uh, very racist towards the sea monsters cuz he you know right, he lost his arm to uh, in a fishing accident and that kind of thing. Um but he ends up of course being very welcoming of them he sort of basically adopts Alberto at the end of it.
1: He is the classic single dad with a this like tomboyish daughter yeah. who who is like physically threatening but clearly ha- has like the softest heart in the yeah. world. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And then I loved his cat. His cat was hilarious because it obviously hated the sea monster characters
1: and uh, was, you
0: know, just little little sight gags from the cat. I
1: loved uh, Luca's uncle, who's a sea monster. Uncle Luca. Yeah. Who is a sea monster from the deep. And because he lives in the depths of the ocean, you can't really see well. So he's got like these two eyes that kind of look in separate directions all the time. So you don't know where it's focusing. Yeah, and he's kind of transparent. Yeah, and he's got transparent. He's got those little angler things, this light light angler. And, and I thought yeah, they, I think they really underused him. I, I think there could have been a lot more funny moments in the movie with... With involving the adults, not just Luca being like this literal fish out of the water type thing, you know, where he can't walk or he doesn't know how to eat or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Because you get the one
0: scene where he's introduced. He the the idea is that Luca's parents are worried about him spending too much time close to the humans. They think the humans pose like a Mm -hmm. mortal threat to to Luca and their kind. So they say, well, you can't go up near the surface anymore. You're going to go live with Uncle Lugo down in the depths. And so that's actually the catalyst that gets him to run away with Alberto to the human town. Um, so you get that kind of kickoff point. And the only other time you see Ugo is in the very end. It's a post credit scene.
1: Which I didn't realize until like I went online and I didn't realize there was a post credit scene. Yeah. And even I thought the post credit scene wasn't that funny.
0: Yeah, it's just a one little joke, you know.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, you kind of touched on something too is parents. Parents with an S plural. Um, in all, in most of the past Pixar films... The main character has often come from like a single parent family home. Right. Um, but for this one and Inside Out, you see two parents now. And I wonder if that's a philosophical change from Pixar. I, I wonder if there was any thought given to it. Because if you look at Toy Story, Andy's got his mom, right? Yep. All the other ones that I can think of, Russell and Up. Well, does Russell Russell have two parents it's unclear you do, you don't ever see them on screen I I know the old dude what uh, what's his name Carl Carl yeah loses his wife really early on right so there's always, always some sort of like family tragedy where, yeah. where someone really important dies or it goes missing or, or something like that so and I think that kind of element is missing emotionally I think the if, if it was like a single parent kind of like um in Finding Nemo, where you have a single dad who is like really worried because for his son's health and and well being because he is traumatized by something in the past, mm-hmm. I I think there's more to that than you know uh, sea monsters not daring to venture out there because they're being hunted.
0: Yeah, and they don't like. Despite all of the fears that the that the two sea monster parents have um, about the humans, they go to land no problem. Yeah, the, by Yeah, the they way. they surface on land. They're running around the town, bullying all the local village kids <laughs> for <laughs> for like days. It seems, they're just pushing them into the fountain and like dropping things on their head and stuff. Um, but the uh, the the parents like you don't really get a sense of where the parents got their fear of the humans from. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't get that kind of like real gut punch moment where you see oh okay the the sea monsters have a really good reason to be afraid of the humans because they really have come close to being killed by them before or
1: something like that. Right. And even the grandma is like, ah, so what? He went to land. Who cares? Yeah. And, and
0: later on, we even see that there are other sea monsters in disguise living in the town. So, Right.
1: Exactly. So it kind of takes that element of danger away. Yeah. Right. Where you're just like, okay, uh, Luca's parents were just being unreasonably protective, overbearing.
0: Yeah. And then the other core relationship is just between Luca and Alberto because they're, right. they're kind of at odds over whether... Alberto wants to kind of keep things the way they are, and he would prefer to just sort of have a completely free-wheeling sort of life. He wants to uh, get on the Vespa, explore the world, not have any connections to anyone. It it's, and it's revealed that yeah, you know, he has a single parent in his background who kind of abandoned him. So that's the
1: he, he I think he would have been a more interesting main character, though. eh? Possibly. Yeah.
0: But then that's that's uh, contrasted against Luca, who has both parents and has a certain amount of support from them. But ultimately, his he's kind of on board with the Vespa idea, but he'd actually prefer to go to school with Julia and expand his his
1: horizons that way. Yeah. What a goody two shoes. <laughs> like what kind of kid is like mom and dad? I want to go to school and learn stuff. i think more kids identify more with alberto maybe yeah
0: yeah certainly the 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 types of kids who would gravitate towards pixar i think you know because pixar's always been more about those kinds of characters like you said
1: the the oddball one right like the one that's left out yeah i totally agree with you there's nothing nothing interesting about the goody two shoes who tries to be the antagon or a protagonist every (laughs) single time Uh, anyway to me anyway but uh, I, i was watching the relationship between alberto and luca and it really reminded me of call me by your name
0: yeah there was a lot of people making that connection
1: yeah and i went online and like i was kind of surprised that i wasn't the only one to really make this connection Mm. and i don't know if like call me by your name has ruined all italian coming of age stories for me for all time now (laughs) but there was a bit of like uh, a gay undertone between Alberto and Luca because, you know, they bathed together, live together, were wholly dependent on each other. Mm. Even the director had to count and say, you know what, these are prepubescent boys. It's clearly a platonic relationship. Yeah. But I couldn't just escape that thought. And I, I wonder if it's because Call Me By Your Name was so, like, impactful for me. Yeah. So memorable. Or if I'm just, you know, weird.
0: I, I think there was a certain amount of kind of... Maybe wishful thinking is the wrong way to put it, but that kind of sense sense of it would be good to see Disney make a story like that because up until now, they've been very uh, scared of having same-sex relationships of any kind in their in their movies even if it's like well you
1: need that china money right exactly
0: yeah i mean they're they're the they're this, <laughs> look at star wars yeah they're this multinational company same thing with the uh, with the end of uh, rise of skywalker you know they they, they kept the uh, the gay kiss way in the background with two supporting characters so it's clear that that's a motivation for them they're not going to come right out and and confirm anything like that um even if it does bear a really close resemblance to it
1: but yeah. I, I don't know. It's probably the setting the, and the aesthetic, you know, and, and two young boys running wild. That yeah. that plays a part for sure. And I mean... Uh, I Did you get that feeling, though? I
0: mean, I saw why people would see that connection, but I didn't myself pick up on it because I... Oh,
1: okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm being weird, I think. No, no,
0: no. I mean, well, like we said, there's lots of other people who felt saw the connection, too, but the... Uh, but I, I'm more on the on the side of the director who says that like he acknowledges that there's similarities there, but the intention of the script was to just have them be friends. Right, right, platonic friendship.
1: So, yeah, I can't say I love this. Um, it's got to be near the bottom in terms of Pixar films, mind you. The the bar is pretty high. Yes, that's true. Yeah, and the the floor is really high as well. So I mean, it, it stands out against all the other animated films because it's it's so well done. Um, in terms of the animation and the character design. But story-wise, I found it really lacking. So unfortunately, I can't really recommend it to everyone. No,
0: it's it's the kind of thing where, you know, you won't go wrong by tossing it on for your kids on Disney Plus if you're looking for something for that to distract them on a rainy day. But it's not the kind of thing that you would rush out to see and pay like 50 bucks if it was playing in a movie theater. Yeah,
1: this is the type of Pixar movie where parents leave it on for their kids rather than watching it with their kids, I think. So then changing gears
0: entirely, way back to the time travel stuff. Maybe we should have done this in a different order. Yeah, I agree. Who cares? (laughs) Who cares? doesn't matter. It's our show. We make the rules. Well, Um,
1: so we did Loki and Luca. So that's the connection there. uh, Ah, yeah. Okay. Good point.
0: But yeah, let's talk about the Tomorrow War. This big $200 million alleged acquisition from Paramount on Amazon Prime.
1: 30 years
0: in the future. We are fighting a war. Our enemy is not human, and we are losing. We need you to fight.
1: I will be back. And I love you, Chickpea. Seven days from now, when you're sent into that war, you won't be fighting for your country. You'll be fighting for the world.
0: And this is a as close to like a summer tent tentpole that Amazon's probably going to get this summer, I would say, unless they've got a few others on their calendar for the next month or two.
1: Well, yeah, we'll have to see what else they
0: have the money to spend on. So, but this is a this is a movie that was intended for theatrical release. Paramount sat on it for a while. They were worried about putting it out during a time when not every movie theater is open and they didn't want to take a, a loss on it. so they sold it to, to Amazon. And you know, the in in a theatrical kind of context, it makes sense. It's it's big. It's high concept. It's got a lot of recognizable stars in it. Mm-hmm. But story wise, it's it's very
1: formulaic, derivative.
0: Formulaic. It's it's made of like off the shelf sci fi disaster movie parts. And yeah, uh, do you want to you want to do the plot summary?
1: Sure, sure. Okay, so directed by Chris McKay, who did the Lego Batman movie and its sequels, or upcoming sequel, I should say. So, it's a story about Dan Forrester, played by Chris Pratt, who is a former Green Beret and a current high school biology teacher who is watching the World Cup during Christmas, which, by the way, makes zero sense because the World Cup is played. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, plot hole number one, the first, like, within the first 10 minutes, I was like, I was scratching my head, going, like, Why is the World Cup going on when during Christmas time? This makes no sense. Anyway. As he's watching the World Cup game, on the soccer pitch, a portal opens up and a commander, a military commander from 2051 arrives and warns the entire world of a coming war. Now, in this war, humankind is losing. So, in an effort to, I guess, increase uh, their military presence in the future, they've come back in time to draft civilians into this war for a seven-day tour, even though the survival rate is less than 30%. And so, naturally, the whole world is thrown into a panic. All sorts of civilians are enlisted—old, uh, young, female, male—doesn't matter what your profession is. Everyone has to enlist. So they're trying to make it sound like the situation is really dire, and I guess it really is because at some point, I think they talk about how there's only five hundred thousand people left in this future world that they that they inhabit. Right. So Dan Forrester becomes naturally as any protagonist would be, a key piece of the puzzle uh, in saving the world as he learns more about his own future and the monsters, which are called White Spikes. And imagine like a sort of like 50, not maybe not 50, but like 20, 30 foot long hound with like a skeletal structure with tentacles coming out of it. And it shoots spikes at you. Yeah, like gunfire. And it eats you and it tears at you. Yeah, and it's like this big, gigantic beast of a creature, Um which is, I think, well-designed, actually. I thought I really enjoyed the character design of the characters or the monsters, I should say. Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah. Like if there's anything that this movie contributes to like this genre, it's creature design because these things are vicious looking mm-hmm. And you 100% buy how they could take over the world because when you see them moving mm-hmm. in huge numbers and how they adapt to situations, they can they know to avoid gunfire. They can turn their backs to, you know, their armored backs to gunfire so that they don't get blasted. Um, mm-hmm. They can glide uh, from high places into uh, into combat. You know, they're they're nasty, nasty things. And the, the queen ones are even tougher. And there's a number of times where a fight seems to be going towards the humans and then the white spikes are very clever and they they turn the tables. So right, exactly. All of that stuff is very tense, very dynamic, fun to watch. Um, but it's just the plot around all that stuff that feels like so many other better movies kind of stapled together.
1: We'll get into it that in, in just a sec because you mentioned that... Uh, Amazon had bought this from Paramount for two hundred million. Now I have no idea what goes on uh, and how do they arrive at this figure. But to me, if this movie was ever released worldwide, I feel like it would have grossed more than two hundred million.
0: No. Uh, in a normal year, yeah, I think the the question was like Paramount didn't know.
1: I feel like they sold it at a discount.
0: Uh, yeah, but but if but during COVID though, that's the thing.
1: I mean, true, but
0: if like let's say it had come out on schedule like I don't know November December last year, they would probably would have had a hard time hitting like three hundred four hundred. I would I would guess with the number of oh of like, course yeah with yeah, the number yeah. of like North American theaters that were open, so they were probably looking at it. They were like, God, we've spent so much money to make this thing. And we probably won't make back our budget if we release it now. Let's kick it to Amazon.
1: Well, I mean, that's true. I mean, I guess hindsight is 2020, but I, I do think we're closer to getting out of COVID than being in the midst of it. Yeah. So I wonder if Paramount could have just held out for like another year, just like 007, and really tried to bank on the box office receipts they would have received. Mm. Because I feel like a film like this would have a lot of appeal. Uh, for casual moviegoers and overseas. I mean, that's just like a minor thing. I, w- I was kind of wondering about. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. There's nothing in it that would really kind of piss you off necessarily. Um, especially if especially if you're a casual viewer who doesn't uh, like kind of dissect movies the way we do. <laughs> uh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> or have salty opinions. Yes.
0: Uh, yes. Yeah. But yeah, the <laughs> like I was I was really on board with this in the first two thirds of it. Like. All the way up to the big climactic moment where uh, Chris Pratt and Yvonne Strahovski, who plays the future version of his daughter, Mm -hmm. they have successfully captured one of these alien queens and they've determined that if they can analyze her blood, they can develop a toxin that will kill all these white spikes. And the idea is for Chris Pratt's character to take this this new toxin back with him at the end of his seven-day tour, and then he can give it to his people so that they can mass manufacture it and send all of that toxin forward into the future mm-hmm. to deal with the threat. Mm-hmm. So they, they build up to this whole moment. The White Spikes obviously get wise to what's going on. They send a huge force to stop the the humans. There's this really wrenching moment where Chris Pratt has to say goodbye to his adult daughter and she's like getting torn up by all of the creatures, all of that stuff,
1: and then the movie keeps going. <laughs> Agreed. I, I I honestly thought that was the end.
0: Yeah, and and I was like, okay, I can like they they did so much stuff off the front of the movie to tell you about how humanities come together and are willing to take this crazy long shot to you know convince millions of people to sign up for this global draft and build all this infrastructure and hire all these people to send soldiers forward into the future. But then when Chris Pratt comes back with the one killer cure to the whole problem, they don't believe him and they say, no, we're not going to give you any money or people to go chase this lead. You have to get your conspiracy theorist father played by JK Simmons to fly you incognito with like seven other people into the middle of nowhere to try to kill these things
1: into Russian airspace, not middle of nowhere. Into okay, well let us kind of rewind for a bit because okay, yeah, maybe we maybe we skip beca- because there are a lot of things I think just wrong with how the movie progresses to that point. Right. First of all, the opening scene where we see Chris Pratt, like the first shot you see is Chris Pratt traveling through that wormhole, that jump link technology to move him to the future. Right. One, I thought that was a bad idea. I I think it should have started with the World Cup announcement i think that would have been a lot better because when he's going through the wormhole doesn't make me think huh i wonder what it is it may just makes me go what the hell am i watching yeah and then it goes to present day and i'm like okay well how does this connect i'm a little confused here so that was the first thing the second thing is chris pratt plays a former decorated green beret who has who's forced to become a biology teacher I mean, who is called into action and and obviously his background conveniently is very convenient.
0: Yes. (laughs) Conveniently, very convenient.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And he's, you know, stands out from this ragtag group of civilian uh, draftees that go into war. And the part, you know, when they first, I mean, we're going to spoilers now, so I don't care. But when they time jump and then all of a sudden technology is messed up and he's falling like 100 feet through the air. Yeah, and him and the several other key characters are the ones that just happen to land into like a pool on the rooftop of a building. That it was just ridiculous.
0: Yeah, and they never really circle back to explain how they screwed up that jump so bad, or you know what was going on there. And and
1: they never explain how they fixed it either. No, no. Like
0: if that's gonna if if it's gonna screw up going that way, then it's just as likely to screw up when he's being zapped back at the right. You know, at the end of the second act or whatever.
1: And so they infiltrate this building. Uh, we're introduced to this female character who obviously is commander of the future forces, who is very obviously connected to him somehow. Like mm. you make the connection right away that she's either really important or somehow tied into their lives in 2022 or the present day, whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, but I thought the introduction of the White Spikes was very well done.
0: Yeah, lots of ten- tension there. Um, you know, they don't give it all away right away. There's there's a lot of, like, seeing them from a distance kind of thing.
1: Mm-hmm. And so they have this long, drawn-out battle with the White Spikes. Never mind the fact that somehow, you know, a team of five people can fend <laughs> off, like, a giant horde of White Spikes, even though, like, yeah. I'd say most of them have no military training whatsoever. Yeah. I'm also a little surprised that guns from... 2051 or whatever are just as terrible well not terrible but but the same technology as the guns we have today yeah
0: you'd think that we'd be talking laser beams or something by this point
1: yeah exactly and so there's this moment kind of like in uh, the rock where like fighter planes are coming in they're gonna carpet bomb the city And they have to get out of the way. And the Jets do carpet bomb the city, but they all somehow survive.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, of course, by that point, the Chris Pratt's little fighting team has been cut down pretty heavily by the White Spikes. But, yeah, 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 yeah. still plot armor around the few core people.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So much plot armor. (laughs) And so we go through all this stuff, and they do all sorts of explaining and whatnot. And you're like, okay, all right, this is a very generic movie so far. And I don't want to spoil all of it. But, yes. Uh, we reach a point where they develop a cure. Chris Pratt goes back to the present. Yeah. And he realizes, oh, crap. The white spikes of the future have destroyed that time travel technology that humans have de- have developed. Yeah. And his he can no longer send a cure back to the future to save humanity. I thought that would have been a perfect ending to the movie.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like, if, if you're going to go for, like... Um, kind of subversion type stuff like a slightly dark ending that would work pretty well
1: yeah I, I think that would have been a great ending because you talk about all this time chris pratt's character has all this plot armor things are going his way the entire time and then the final twist is that hey all you all, everything that you did is for nothing and it's not through no failure of your own it's yeah. just that Something totally unplanned and unexpected ruined everything, and I think that to me is much more realistic than whatever happens next.
0: Yeah, yeah, because they, you know, they have to set up this kind of um, very implausible series of events where the government doesn't believe him, doesn't want to take a risk on his theory. Um, he ends up, you know, recruiting one of his high school students to
1: help him with the analysis. I was gonna say the biggest codebreaker, the biggest key to his new plan. Was a high school kid, yeah, who happened to be like who a- just happens to know about volcanoes. <laughs> yeah.
0: So they, you know, they do some like like, oh like back of the God. napkin type of math, and they figure out, you know, where where this thing is supposed to be, and they they launch their final their final mission to eradicate these things. Yeah, but the whole time I was like, I I just did not buy that. It would get to that kind of skeleton crew kind of phase like there had, you know, there I I don't care about any of the hand wavy stuff they do about, oh, there's some rioting on the go and we're too busy quelling the riots. I'm like, mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. you have a global draft going on. You don't have a f- like maybe 20 or 50 extra people to send with Chris Pratt into Russia to help. him yeah, out. Yeah. Or just like, what else do you have to
1: lose? Yeah. Like, you're out of options at that point. You might as well go with the most crazy option that some random dude came up with. Yeah. Who just also happens, by the way, to be the wor- only person who managed to find a cure. Yeah. The only person who's, like... uh Uh, like not the only person but uh, someone who's done like a successful tour and knows what it's like yes and the whole thing was just totally implausible so
0: and i think i mean i understand from like a scripting point of view they wanted to set up this they'd introduced jk simmons character before they had right the themes of the movie had all dealt with like parental abandonment and everything and right they wanted to kind of circle back to the jk simmons character the fact that he had abandoned chris pratt's family when uh when uh Chris Pratt's character was a kid, so they wanted a final father-son reunion moment that would kind of mirror the relationship between Chris Pratt's character and his daughter. So, you know, fine and dandy, we get that kind of catharsis, blah, 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 but it could have been done in a way more fulfilling way, I think.
1: The other time I thought the movie could have ended a lot better was when they find this alien spaceship and they realize it's a colony. Yeah. It has a lot of alien vibes in that sense.
0: Big time. Oh, yeah, huge... uh, like Alien Covenant or even Prometheus ripoffs. Like yeah, yeah. Um, they there's some Starship Troopers in there. I mean, Starship Troopers is a way better movie than this because at least it, I agree. At least it has the the kind of guts to have it be like a fascist satire type thing yeah, right? yeah
1: it's got it's leading with political commentary that this one doesn't right this movie
0: is like the, the the furthest this movie goes in terms of like political commentary is like oh the white spikes were awoken by climate change <laughs>
1: <laughs> or like oh politicians are terrible and they take credit for everything
0: yeah just what like real lame cliches um
1: what was the other movie that this reminded me of
0: oh there's some edge of tomorrow in there the tom cruise there's Edge
1: of Tomorrow, there's Independence Day, mm-hmm. there's definitely a bit of Interstellar with the future father and daughter kind of relationship and how they managed to solve a problem together. Yep. You're right. It pulls a little bit of everything. And not that it doesn't come together well, it's just that for a film like this where, you know, I think a lot of things were well done including the acting and the the general idea, it is it kind of relies on too many uh, previous plot points that we've seen in all the other films
0: and I mean I will hand it to that that final showdown in Russia with the queen alien that was really solid again like you know backs up the whole idea of how tough these things are and just when you think that they stabbed her with the toxin she bites off her own arm <laughs> keeps fighting I mean she she does not go down easy
1: yeah that that part was awesome by the way I thought that was really smart but the part where like was it Sam Robinson uh the co-star oh yeah the guy from um i think you should leave yeah sam Robinson, jk simmons chris pratt so much plot armor it is ridiculous (laughs) yeah
0: and i was surprised when he actually he wanted to go with them on the mission because when he wakes up after surviving his tour it looked like he'd been so wrecked and he was so like overcome with ptsd that there was no way he was gonna He's going to get up again.
1: I'm surprised they didn't bring along the high school kid who was an expert in volcanoes. (laughs) He would have been a really useful guy to have around.
0: Even after he gave them the key to where everything was, they still had to dig around in the ice for a while.
1: Can can I also mention that Sam Robinson's character is apparently the CEO of a geothermal research (laughs) company? And he knows nothing about volcanoes? What the hell is this? There are a lot of things that you just have to let slide. Yeah. And it's that type of movie, and Chris Pratt, like kudos to him, he's made like a career out of this, right? He's made a career of being like the likable protagonist in these really inoffensive, apolitical action films. Yeah,
0: which I, I guess plays into his, like, I mean, his personal politics too. He's been criticized in the press and stuff for for being a fundamentalist Christian, and you know, obviously he. Oh, he, is he? he? I didn't know that. Yeah, it, but but he uh, he's not going to make any movies like that no for like his his mainline career because he knows that that would be very divisive so he he seems to be deliberately picking movies that are
1: like almost inoffensive to a fault he does not rock the boat and i think that's why studios will always cast him because i mean credit him he's like a good actor in my opinion like if if you want something you know like actiony and you need a protagonist maybe down the road he goes to like a Uh, McConaissance type deal where he like totally reinvents himself as a dramatic actor. But uh, so far. Well, Hey, I mean,
0: you know, the, uh, the, the floor is opening up there because people think that McConaughey is going to run for governor of Texas. So, Mm. Hey, if we, if if we're going to get another um, kind of rom-com slash action film actor, make a turn towards award-worthy work. Why not?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's been done before. Reagan did it. Schwarzenegger did it. McConaughey might do it. Why not Chris Pratt, right? Freaking, it's America. Anything could happen, right? Yeah. (laughs) The perfect story. Like, I remember reading about how, like, before he booked Parks and Rec, he was basically living out of a van or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Great for him. Great for him. I don't know if I'd recommend this movie, to be honest. I think there are parts of it that are interesting. If you want to kill two hours, this is great. There's not, nothing in it that I hated but just about everything in it felt a little boring to me other than the fight scenes it felt like a cutscene video game for half of yeah,
0: it yeah and i feel like a lot of the problem is just the structure like it, i i can envision a version of this movie that's like 20 minutes shorter and instead of like time warping back to his present time there's like i don't know a malfunction with his time warp mm-hmm. bracelet or whatever and he mm-hmm. he finds himself you know having to go with Ivan Strahovski and a few other people to do that crack team mission in a different timeline. That's like not where he came from or where he went, you know, and we don't have to have that whole extra buildup that we get in the third act here. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they, I feel like this, if the script had been a bit tweaked and had been trimmed down and simplified, it it might've hit harder. But uh, yeah, if you're, if you're a fan of sci-fi stuff and you want to see some really cool villains, I can recommend it on that front. But everything else, like if you're looking for a real hard-hitting story, this ain't
1: it. (laughs) Agreed. I do have one burning question for you. Okay. So there's a scene where after a lengthy fight where they go attack the White Spikes Nest, Yvonne Strahovski and Chris Pratt barely escape. And Chris Pratt is obviously very curious about what happens between 2022 and 2051. And he asks uh, Yvonne, you know, what happened to us? Like, why are you alone in this? Um, how do I die? What happens to your mom? Blah, blah, blah. And she goes into this little sob story about how, you know, you, dad, you left us and then you died in a car accident. And I, as she's relaying the story and she's got like tears streaming down her face, the only thing I can think of is like, What? At what point does he become this, like, totally absentee dad? Like, if he had traveled back in time and figured out that the cure doesn't work. Yeah. Maybe that's what pushes him away from his family because he realizes that everything he does is futile and he's too depressed to deal with anything, right? But, I mean, what was the point of him, you know, being, abandoning his family and dying in a car accident? What was the significance of that? I don't get it. Yeah. You know, his motivations
0: for, say, like he briefly at the very end of the climax in that act, he wants to stay there and help her help fight with her. So he loses he loses the thread of what he's supposed to be doing entirely. He's like, no, I I want you know, he's like we have I have to save you from all of these evil monsters. And I'm like, dude, that's the whole point. You have the stuff. Go back. Well, the part
1: where he like jumps after her when she's getting taken away by the White Spikes was just like, yeah, it's just like clearly the director just wanted a a nice shot for a film.
0: Exactly, and I feel like that scene you described on the beach, which happens earlier, is the same sort of thing where it's like we need an emotional moment between these two, but logically it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because the second she tells him about the future that she saw, you know, her past, it's already changed the outcome right right because now now he has that foreknowledge of it so he's going to go back to his own time and probably take steps to not have that happen right so that's where that's where the time the time travel stuff screws up the script like it does all the time in every other thing you know yeah and
1: even before that there was never any hints that he would leave like that like Yeah. yeah maybe he would be unhappy because you know things don't certain things don't work out like with his job and whatnot But he was clearly very devoted to his daughter the entire time in the introduction. Yeah.
0: And that's why I was, I was very pissed off when that extra bit gets stapled on at the end, because when he comes back, because I was, you know, they, they seem to be pushing his character towards this idea of like, Oh, the PTSD is kicking in now because he saw how she dies in the jaws of all these horrible creatures. And he thinks that he's failed. And I'm like, no, you have the solution in the green vial. Like, you don't have to, you, this is stupid. Like in the moment, your your motivations in this moment do not make any sense. I was very, very upset.
1: The other thing is too, like if he has a cure, he doesn't need to go back to the future to send it there. Just make a bunch of it in store until 2051.
0: Yeah, that was another solution I thought of. I was like, well, why don't, you know, if the government doesn't believe you now, maybe, you know, if you have it in, a, in like, I don't know, an area 51 vault for the next 30 years, when they, when these things do pop out of the ground, You'll have it.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I, I I guess that's why at the end of the day, this movie didn't feel that not not complete, but just not very tight. Yeah. You you could have trimmed
0: out a few things, rearranged a few things. It would have it would have hit a lot harder. But if you're just looking for uncomplicated, um, big budget action on Amazon Prime, and you've run out of other stuff meet in that description on on the service then yeah no no harm no foul here
1: the white spikes would have looked great in theaters though on the big screen
0: yeah with with real good sound i'm lucky to have a nice sound system uh, uh, here for me to to uh, to use but uh yeah it would have been way better with like absolute theater quality stuff
1: so the moral of this episode is don't introduce time travel unless you really know what you're doing
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> or like side note Try to avoid time travel entirely because unless Agreed. it's you, you know there's very few people who can pull it off.
1: Agreed. Or at least make well, no, I won't go into how to make it right. Just don't do it, period. Yeah. <laughs> and and worse, once it's established, don't try and introduce new concepts or explain things away. It just it doesn't work like that.
0: Yeah, exactly. Or you risk pissing us off and you don't want that.
1: <laughs> right? So uh I think that's a good point to end our episode on. Yeah, so uh,
0: as always we uh, we ask you to head over to kinetoscope.ca where there's a review of The Tomorrow War and a review of Luca as well. So if you want a little bit more detail on both of those movies, you can check them out. And if you're liking this podcast, make sure to subscribe to it first of all on the platform of your choice but also give us a little rating so that it rises up the ladder a little bit helps other people find the show but until the next episode my name is robert snow in toronto
1: and my name is jason chen in vancouver thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next time